Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Today I'll be talking with author and Fordham professor Dan Zevin, whose book, Dan Gets a Minivan, is a comic memoir about the transition from couplehood to familyhood. But first, a look at how crowdfunding has changed the video game industry. Typically, the funding for a video game comes from publishers. But there's a growing popularity of developing games through crowdfunding, a fundraising method where projects are financed through donations. WFUV's Alan Canlick looks at why some developers are choosing crowdfunding over publishers. They've taken out my left engine, and you can see we're pulling to the left now. Oh, here we go. I'm falling, and they're, yeah, destroyed. <laughs> In the small lower Manhattan office of Muse Games, project lead Brian Kerr sits shoulder to shoulder with team lead Howard Sow and other programmers testing Guns of Icarus online. It's a team-based video game where players fly into battle with airships in a post-apocalyptic world. It's a unique idea that's considered too niche by some publishers to help fund the game's development. Sow says it could be a challenge developing a game on your own dime, but he says working with publishers brings to the table a whole new set of issues. What ends up happening is that you know, the publisher has a lot invested, so they have also a lot of opinions about what the game is, you know, for better or worse, right? It's just a creative control. Invariably, there is kind of a tug of war. If the developer and publisher can't come to an agreement, Sal explains things might quickly fall apart. Originally, with Gunseekers Online, we were working with this Asian publisher. There was a honeymoon period, and after that, you know, I think more people got involved. They wanted, you know, some, I don't know, some, like, forehead, you know, really, really anime, you know, cutesy, big eye kind of characters. Um, and we wanted, you know, more gritty, steampunk, you know, diesel punk. You know, we want to stay true to our roots. Enter crowdfunding. The Muse Games team only needed $10,000 to finish creating the game. So they turned to crowdfunding site Kickstarter to raise funds. They wound up raising just over $35,000. This meant they were able to make their game on their own terms, art style and all. Maintaining artistic integrity isn't the only benefit to crowdfunding. Michael Pachter is a video game industry analyst. He says developers who use crowdfunding aren't taking on any debt. The great thing about crowdfunding is that essentially a profit is guaranteed because the money is free. It allows a developer who isn't well capitalized to take a risk without having to risk, you know, mortgaging his home or something or, or losing everything that he's ever built. Pachter says part of the draw to a crowdfunded project is that donors feel like they are part of the process. It's fun for them. It's a very low-risk opportunity for a, for a fan to invest in a game, get a copy of the game, get something like a credit to show their friends. But the absence of a publisher leaves the budget for marketing up in the air. Typically for big games like the military shooter Call of Duty, about half the game's budget is put into advertising and marketing. That's a cost that publishers would usually stomach. Smaller developers simply can't afford to spend half their budget on marketing. But as Eric Chung from Muse Games says, their donors can make up for half the loss. Word of mouth is the most important thing for us. Working with our own community, they want to talk about our game already. So we're trying to figure out, it's like, okay, you want to talk about our game, so why don't you tell your friends and be an evangelist for us? And that's the best kind of relationship that we can have. So they feel a part of our team and they're helping us out. So it's really great. Success of small developers like Muse Games doesn't seem to have publishers shaking in their boots. Richard Spitalny is the CEO of First Star Software. He says publishers aren't at risk of losing business. Kickstarter put out some of their own stats. And uh, when they listed their uh, categories and the projects that had started and which ones were successful, they did not even list video games. They talk about film and video, which was their largest number of projects launched. They have music projects. Uh, they talked about dance, but um, they don't even mention video games. Spitalny admits publishers could start using crowdfunding sites like Kickstarter to find and pursue talent. 
but that doesn't interest the team at Muse Games. They're working on two new projects and plan to use Kickstarter as a way to fund them. This way, they'll have the flexibility to create projects that are a departure from what some say has become a cookie-cutter standard set by the industry. For WFUV News, I'm Alan Kane. I'm Robin Shannon, and you're listening to Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. My guest today has a long resume. Dan Zevin teaches humor writing here at Fordham, was a comic correspondent for NPR, has authored a number of books and blogs, has an online talk show, and has been a contributor to a number of national publications, including Rolling Stone. But the title he seems most proud of is Husband and Father. And he gives us a peek at this world in his latest book, Dan Gets a Minivan, Life at the Intersection of Dude and dad. Good morning, Dan. Good morning. So, why'd you get a minivan? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't even, I don't call it a minivan. I call it a maxi van. I don't <laughs> know. It's just that big? Oh, it's enormous. It looks like an aircraft carrier. <laughs> the reason that I got a minivan is that one day I found myself packing the trunk of our old little Subaru sedan that we were driving around in Brooklyn where we were living. And there was just so much stuff. There was the porta crib and the jolly jumper and the vibrating seat and the saucer seat and the potty seat. A lot of seats at that time. I had little kids. I'm trying to fit all this stuff in the trunk. And I realized at that point, we've outgrown this car. And we, you mean your wife and your wife and, your, and, your, and I and my, my two little kids. And then. And what are their names? Leo and Josie. How old are they? Well, now Leo just turned nine and Josie is oh. six. When I when I wrote this book, Dan Gets a Minivan, when I started it, they were three and, you know, at that time Leo was six. Mm -hmm. So I've been writing this book for quite a long time. I worked on it for many, many years, on and off, mostly off. So why? <laughs> so what, what was behind your decision to write this book, to turn your experience into a book? You know, it's a good question. I think I was one of those guys that thought nothing would change when I had kids. Oh, surprise! <laughs> and then everything changed. Um, I was this dude living in Brooklyn in the coolest neighborhood, and now I'm this stay-at-home dad living in the suburbs and driving a minivan around to Costco. And loving it, by the way, which is really the funniest part that I'm trying to share in this book is just those small, funny moments that you never saw coming until you had kids. So um, before we get into some of those funny moments, because we definitely <laughs> will talk about it, I got a lot of laughs from it. What was the biggest challenge you found in writing this book? Finding the time. Mm. This is the I've written. This is my fourth book. Finding the time to write when you are taking care of little children is very difficult. <laughs> People say, "How long did it take you to write this book?" And and I tell them it took. Let's put it this way: it's been seven years since my last book came out, and my son was, <laughs> you know, seven when I finally got to the last chapter writing it. So, yeah, finding the time. Was so the compare hardest. that to your other books. How fast did you write those pre-kids? Yeah, I was never the world's fastest, Speedy Gonzalez at the, at the keyboard. But before kids, your time is your time. You know, you structure it the way you want to structure it. I was a freelance writer. I made my own hours. I was able to, you know, cobble a career together doing columns and stuff like that. Whenever I did, late at night if I wanted to, now... I couldn't do anything late at night except sleep. If you know, first of all, what is the definition of late? For me, late right now is I'd say I put late at ten o'clock. Okay, that's really late. Okay, what time do the kids go to bed? Theoretically, my kids go to sleep at eight o'clock. Mm -hmm. 
but I would say their eyes actually shut at 10. Which is why you get to go to bed at 10. Well, I'm already probably asleep in my daughter's bed at 9.30. (laughs) I fall asleep just like my father did while reading to her every night. I fall sound asleep. My glasses are somewhere, you know, in my stomach and and she's wide awake and i'm i'm sound she's asleep. like daddy move over <laughs> right. get out of my room <laughs> you're pulling out the pillow <laughs> right. so um one of the parts that uh kind of stood out for me was where you discussed what having children can do to someone's ambition and that actually i don't have kids personally but i that resonated with me and i'm i'm gonna kind of clean up the language here but it's when you <laughs> learn to not to give a hoot Yes. And and why is this now empowering learning how not to give a hoot? Not to give a hoot. Yes, the essay is called And of course you didn't use the word hoot. No, I didn't hoot. use the word hoot. It has an asterisk <laughs> in place of the vowel for the word that I did use on no longer. It was an essay called on no longer giving a hoot. Mm. Uh well, I think that having kids gives every writer what they're really looking for, which is an excuse not to write. <laughs> Put it very clearly like that. And but you found it empowering in a way, it too. It is. It's like, you know, I'm pushing middle age here. And at a certain point in my life, I was very ambitious. And I do find that the older I get and the older my peers get, too, whether you're in a, in a self-employed freelance kind of a job or you're in a real job in a real office, your ambitions kind of... Let's say they change, right? So it used to be my ambition to win a Pulitzer Prize, and now it's my ambition to get a reclining seat for the living room. <laughs> now, we, now, do we? Is it because of children, or just because as you grow older, your priorities change? What do you think? I think both. I think that people that have children, it happens to in a more extreme manner, uh, because oh man, there's so much to do for them, and. There's very little time left over for you anymore. And and it the reason it's liberating is because, wow, that's great. The pressure's off. I don't need to win a Pulitzer Prize. Today, what I need to do is sign my daughter up for Taekwondo <laughs> class. That's what I need to do. Now, speaking of um, making things a priority, how do you make your relationship a priority? Because you had some really good advice in your book about things that you do to kind of keep the romance going with your with your loved one. Yeah. So um, I wrote a chapter on date night, which is a, a pathetic custom that I never thought I would be any part of. But now we have date night. Date night. So what is, is date night for, for married folks? So date night is um, when you try to recreate once a week, if you're very lucky, or once a month, what you used to accomplish before you became the kind of couple who had to resort to something as pathetic as organizing a date night. You know, for like two hours, you go out to dinner and you try not to talk about your children. This is what I I said in the book. It's virtually impossible because you don't have a whole lot else to talk about. I mean, I haven't completed a full sentence with my children around for nine years. The only time we get to complete full sentences if we are off premises, you know, and hopefully that's in a restaurant somewhere. So we talk about the kids. You talk about the kids. Yeah, it's not very fascinating. What I said about about um, date night in the book, though, is that it turned into double date night. So because that was my idea. It's like, <laughs> we need to get some other 
couples involved here. That will make us interesting. We'll find interesting people and we'll bring them into our date night. We'll have double date night. And you kind of went on a, you and your wife went on a quest for comance. Is that what, that's what they right, I called it, right? Yes, I called it comance instead of romance because I found myself finding these other people to date. It was like we were dating other couples. Don't get me wrong. This was not like a 70s kind of a swapping <laughs> thing going on here. This was just double dates with other other couples. And, and uh, yeah, I said we were in search of comance. And then what, what I found would, would happen invariably was then it would not be the two of us just talking about our kids anymore. It was four of us talking about <laughs> our kids. <laughs> but it seemed challenging. In your book, uh, Dan Gets a Minivan, talking to Dan Zevin right now about uh, who authored this latest book. You said it It almost seemed as challenging to find a comance other couples as single people when they're dating because you had to go through a couple of different comances that sort of worked and sort of didn't. So you want to describe? Uh, yeah, it was almost ones? like it was almost like real dating of other couples. And, and we would sometimes find that we had to break up with what John and Sarah because, you know, it just wasn't working out. They were. They were not what we had in mind. They were not our type. They were. They were. <laughs> they had one couple that was extremely young. Yes, extremely... our next door neighbors, Max and Kim, who I write about a lot in the book. You know, Brooklyn is full of hipster parents, and I let me just say I wasn't one of them. But it is really full of these people. They go out on weeknights. Even the everything that I found so challenging, and my wife found so challenging about raising small kids in the city, didn't seem to apply. To all of these hipster parents. They were just still having the time of their lives. So Max and Kim were th that kind of couple. And I said, uh, I think I said something like, I thought they were out of our league <laughs> at first, but I finally got the courage to ask them out on a double date. And um, and that, of course, devolved into a discussion about our kids and their kids. And it wound up, a, I think, us arranging a play date for the children. So the co-mance turned into like, you know, a co-mance for the kids, basically. Yeah, it's hard when you're a parent to continue your social life. And I was trying to bring that out in the book because really the way you meet people is through your children right. at that point. is is a very closed kind of a bubble, this world. And um, that's a big change. Now, I also noticed in your book you had advice for some hipster dads. And one of the things that I, I picked up was in your advice, you sort of, sort of implied that some of the playground mommies are out to get fathers. Do you think there is really a competition between moms? Like what brought that out that you had to tell this hipster dad about be careful of the playground mommies? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I found myself in many situations where I was taking my kids around to different classes. They were always called mommy and me. There could be four dads in the pool during little baby swimming class. We were in the mommy and me pool. Even I, though daddy was the primary caregiver at this time. And I find that's a, that was especially true back in Brooklyn. Um, here, now that I'm in the suburbs, there are less stay-at-home dads. But I'll tell you, I, I, we find each other. We definitely find each other. The hipster dad chapter in the book is um, something that I think is specifically a er, an urban mm -hmm phenomenon and there's these guys and they go to the playground with their kids and their kids you can usually tell are dressed in a onesie that says you know sex pistols or you have a six-month-old with a nose stud and and a chain with a <laughs> with a watch in his pocket they're look they look like little hipster versions of the dad 
and and the dad is generally uh, texting, tweeting on the cell phone with his manager or something. And it's, it's like, who is left to take care of the child at the playground? But the moms or the nanny or another stay-at-home dad, which was usually me. I was going to say, know? which was you, which is I'm why just, you had yeah, this yeah. nice advice for them. Right. So, so that was my advice is, you know what? Don't be too cool for drool. Enjoy it while you can. I've been there too, you know. I've done it all. I've I've scooped poop out of a bathtub with a soup ladle. You know, infants they like to use the bathtub as as a toilet. I've had my head thrown up on twice actually. That's right, Robin. And the same day, I called it a double header. Um the, there are all of these indignities, but the thing is, you know, at the end of the day, we're all so lucky to be at that playground. Now, I actually didn't know much about hipster culture till I got here. So why do you think that this culture is sort of gravitating to these areas? Just well, in your opinion. There's so there's so many great parts about living in an urban area. I mean, wow, when when my wife and I moved to Brooklyn, it was like we hit the jackpot. You what know? did you like? There are lots of creative people there. There are lots of interesting things going on um, all the time, and it's not, you know, it's it's not like living in a in a nine to five world. There's always people around, especially if you're a freelance writer. You have a weird job like mine, which is called humorist. You know, you can actually meet other humorists. It's amazing. And so I think there's a lot of creative people that are drawn to places like that, and that makes them really exciting and great. You throw in a couple of babies into that mix, let me tell you, things change. They change for me. They change for me dramatically. I just found slowly things began shrinking. Everything felt smaller, not only the house or the car, the life became ah. uh, claustrophobic. And I While think you were just, in Brooklyn. Yeah, and I feel like suddenly we just needed more space. More space for our stuff, more space for more headspace, you know, to think clearly. So I think that's what led us to make this journey out of Brooklyn and into da 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 suburbia. Now, earlier I mentioned <laughs> um, your extensive resume, but what I failed to mention is that you also were sort of a aspiring musician. You started to take guitar lessons and even said you resembled an artist that we play here at FUV. So tell me about your experience as the other Dan. <laughs> <laughs> the other Dan. The other so I'm Dan Zevin right. and the other Dan that I talk about in my book is Dan Zanes, mm -hmm. who is a great musician and then became a kitty rock star. You know, he used to be in the Del Fuegos, and it's funny. My own my own evolution as a music fan. I used to listen to him in the Del Fuegos, and now the only time I ever listen to Dan Zanes is in all of his kids' records, which are great. There's tons of them and videos. Do your kids and love him? My kids love Dan Zanes more than they love Dan Zevin, which is a problem. I kind of look like him a little bit too, so they they wish that I you know, was him. <laughs> and, so, and, and Dan Zanes happened to live in Brooklyn and in, in close by to our neighborhood. And he was just a real celebrity and all that. He was sort of a sex symbol for the mommies. And I was a little jealous. What can I say? I said it in the book. I was a little jealous of Dan Zane. So, um, also I was looking for a hobby and it's very hard to find a hobby when you have little kids you need to find something that is 
you feel like is for their own benefit, but you can do it without them. So I chose guitar. Felt like a good hobby. I will become cool like Dan Zanes, and I will be able to play music for my kids. And I wrote about that in, in the book. I wrote about that experience. I took a guitar class to learn children's music. And the song I finally learned was The Lion Sleeps Tonight. <laughs> and after I finally, it was like an eight-week class. I found it torturous. I learned three chords, and then I just started air guitaring over all of the other chords and, and hoped the teacher wouldn't notice. You yeah, know, the, three chords is three chords. The Ramones did it. <laughs> did the kids notice, or did they go, yay, did they finally cheer for Dad? I thought they would. I thought they would. They were more like, can we listen to Dan Zanes now? <laughs> no, I think the exact quote, and my son reminded me of this the other day, after I finally had this little mini concert, gathered them together, here we go, I'm going to play you guys The Lion Sleeps Tonight, which I've learned and I've been practicing eight weeks. You ready? Played the whole thing. My son said, Dad, you forgot the Oweebowip part. You know, Oweebowip, Oweebowip, Oweebowip. He was right. I forgot the Oweebowip. My daughter's comment was, my knee itches, <laughs> Daddy. That was it. Completely. And then they left the room. Off to watch the Dan Zanes video. Which he also has <laughs> videos. Which makes it so much easier for you and your jealousy. <laughs> so someone bought me a ukulele. That's my new thing. Oh, I'll try I... that. It's small. It's manageable. Dan Zanes probably plays. I'm sure he plays the ukulele, too. You got to find something he doesn't play. <laughs> you know, the tuba. The tuba. Learn no, the tuba. I can't learn that. That's, that's way too hard. Dan, how did you become a card-carrying member of Costco and how did that turn into what I considered a, a very touching moment in your book where your father sort of passed the torch of fatherhood onto you? Yeah. Um, how did I become a card-carrying member of Costco is a question I ask myself every day, <laughs> which is approximately how often I find myself at Costco. I'm completely addicted now. My father, who is going to be 75 loves Costco and he had been trying to get me to go with him for so many years and I kept saying dad we have nowhere to put this stuff no it's you know you don't get a six pack there you get a 6,000 pack of paper towels and and finally and, now, and then minivan comes in in handy with right big right Costco so he purchases. used to get us stuff at Costco in New Jersey where he lives and I would have to store it in the minivan because it wouldn't all fit in the house. So the minivan <laughs> became a storage, a traveling storage system. Um, so one day I decided I would accompany him to Costco. And I just came around to it. The place is unbelievably great. <laughs> I mean, there is anything you can imagine is available at Costco, especially those things where you never know where they came from. Like, um, you know, I never bought a hanger, I don't think, in my whole life. And they sell hangers there. That's where hangers come from, if anyone was wondering. They originate at Costco. Rubber bands, paper clips, all those weird little things. Not to mention paper towels in, in just crates full of paper towels. The, those, anything you want in bulk is there. I, I, now I go there all the time. So I accompanied him as, as, a, um, as a cynic, and I left as a member, an executive member. <laughs> And you were sort of talking about how um, your dad had always been the go-to guy. 
he just he was the dad he knew what to say he knew what to buy he knew what everything worked for so your experience at costco sort of taught you one where to get anything you might need as a dad <laughs> and two you just kind of had a good bonding experience too there. yeah you know there that that was this element where i felt like during this journey to costco I realized that he is the ultimate provider. And now I know where he gets all the stuff that he provides at Costco. And that's how my father has always been. I love him to death. So you sort of took it for granted. I took it for granted, even though, you know, I'm in my 40s and I have a, my father is still buying me paper towels. It's humiliating. <laughs> I have my own children. You never had to go get it because your dad always got it for he you, He right? was the provider. <laughs> and there was no room to allow his son to be the provider. Until I discovered Costco. And now I myself, you know, I got to tell you, if you don't know what it feels like to come home with 500 jars of Jif peanut butter in it, <laughs> and, uh, you're missing out. You bring that to your children. You feel good about And now life. your son could look at you and say, Dad, it's the provider. He says, you're the provider. We will never run out of toilet paper in the Zevin household. Ever. <gasps> Oh, but it was also a touching moment because your dad was really proud of you. Right. It does get into, it gets into um, the well, pride issue. Why was he so proud of you? We're learning how to go to shop Because now I was more like him. <laughs> what father isn't proud when their son becomes just like, just is finally interested in now something Now you can buy interested. him the paper towels. <laughs> you know what? You know, they sell, one day I will be shopping for my father at Costco. They sell everything from baby supplies to supplies for the elderly. The weird thing is it goes, if you really analyze Costco, now I'm starting to sound like a freak. No, it sounds interesting. I spend a lot of time there. Um, if you analyze it, the baby stuff is at the beginning okay. when you walk in, and the stuff for elderly people is at the end. And the very last product at Costco is a casket. They have their own caskets. Wow. Yeah. So you go from birth the exit. to it. Yeah. <laughs> All to Costco is there for you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, can you read? Can you read a little bit from from your book? Dan gets a minivan to sort of lay it out for my listeners. Yes, um, there was an element where I I talked more about um, the fact that you know when your father is the consummate provider, it's hard for you to feel that he ever feels proud of you because he's the one providing everything all the time, even into adulthood. So I'll read from that chapter. As he surveyed the spoils of my well-stocked cart, his face beamed with pride. It was an expression I have rarely seen. I know you are shocked, but when your father's a lifelong provider, you get precious few chances to make him feel proud. You might even suspect that the real reason he's providing is, he, is that he thinks you can't do it yourself. Deep down, there's not a doubt in my mind that my father is proud of me. But sometimes I wonder if it's not only pride that he's feeling, but pride laced with pity. My mind drifted back to a time long ago. My second book had just been published. It was a satirical guide for couples about to be wed, subtitled How to Survive the Happiest Day of Your Life. The happiest day of my father's life was the day he saw my book displayed at Papyrus, the fancy stationery store ranking right up there with his club and his museums on his list of best-loved travel destinations, his club being the wholesale club, Costco. Why papyrus is hard to say. I imagine the greeting cards there give him a lot of material for his proverbs. In any case, he called me the second he got home from the mall. Danny, they had your book in papyrus, a whole stack. I bought every one. Wow, thanks, Dad. 
I told the lady you wrote it. She was very impressed. Thanks. Nice lady. She said she'd be willing to take a meeting with us. I could see where this was going. My father wanted me to do a book signing at his beloved Papyrus. As it happens, Papyrus is a franchise, he said. Do you know what I mean by a franchise, Danny? The pride part was ending. A franchise means the lady owns the Papyrus. And let me tell you something, she does very well for herself. The pity had begun. So now that you and Megan will be settling down and starting a family, maybe it's time that you'd like to do a book signing at Papyrus? Oh, sure, wonderful idea, but also open a Papyrus. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where he was at. You know... Leave it to your dad. Yeah. Leave it to fathers in general. <laughs> yeah. Being a writer is... Um, is tricky territory for a father who is very concerned with security. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it's this is my fourth book, but still, it wasn't until you know it wasn't until he saw it at Costco that he was really impressed. Ah. It didn't matter, People Magazine, CBS, whatever. I was on TV for this. Once it was at Costco, then, I was then he was proud. Yeah. Then you hit the pinnacle. <laughs> Where can we get your book? Uh. My book is available on online, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. Hopefully it's in bookstores. Um, if it's not, you can ask for it. Um, and it's uh, you can get it on my website, DanZevin.com. And they might want to get it before it becomes a movie? Well, that's really thrilling news is that Adam Sandler optioned the book. Um, and it he optioned it as a sitcom. And it's, it's funny, everybody thinks their life would be... Sometimes everyone thinks their life is a sitcom, right? So mine actually might really become a sitcom. <laughs> um, so I'm very excited about that. My thanks to Dan Zevin, whose latest book, Dan Gets a Minivan, Life at the Intersection of Dude and Dad, is published by Scribner. Thanks, Dan. Thank you for having me. All around the kitchen cock-a-doodle-doodle-doo All around the kitchen cock-a-doodle-doodle-doo All around